humans are hardwired for survival. It's not like we're hardwired for high performance or risk-taking or anything like that. And all the scenarios that my brain may play out, I'm really pragmatic with the percentage of those happening. And the reality is that the percentages of, of things going really bad, like drowning, are so minutely low as long as I do the preparation work. I'm constantly assessing what could go wrong, but then how likely is that doing all the preparation so that if something goes wrong, I make the best of that situation or I prepare to avoid anything going wrong. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people, as in today's guests, who have literally lived and breathed the world of self-influence with the intention to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, I, I have a bit of an obsession with fear, or to be honest, I didn't actually realize that I did until looking over some of the amazing guests we've had and, and have lined up for this podcast this year and realizing that fear, or, or at least mastering fear, seems to be a constant and underlying theme. So that raises the question of why. What has fear got to do with influence and why can I not seem to leave it alone? And I'll tell you why. Other than because, you know, it's a daily dance of my own in one way, shape or form, as it is for anyone that's ever tried to do or say anything in the public domain or work with anyone who tried to do or say anything in the public domain or any domain for that matter. And when I really thought about it, and I did before putting together this introduction, I think it's because over the years of working alongside influencers, I, I have met and I have worked with one too many brilliant people. One too many brilliant ideas, companies, brands and products. One too many people with something important to say or contribute who have all been left on the sidelines. And usually as a result of this statement. I will do this. Put up my hand, disagree, speak out, get up and be seen, step out from behind the brand, present in front of other people, say no when I feel more, insert, confident, perfect, um, sure of the environment, sure of the rules, etc, etc, etc. I don't know if that sounds familiar. Essentially, I will show up, stand up, be seen and offer the full force of what I have to offer when I feel less fearful. So in that sense, fear or the ability to move towards fear, harness it, rewrite its stories and relinquish its control over when and how we show up is the ultimate key to influence. Without it, the rest, the negotiation tools, the presentation skills, the content algorithms, leadership habits, all of it means nothing at all. So there's my why. Now back to this episode. As a metaphor for negotiating with fear, surfing a 50-foot wave, 50 feet of water, has to be on top of the list. 
As one of Australia's best big wave surfers, my next guest, Mark Matthews, understands better than most the intersection of fear, focus, and staying in place when backing out seems like the only sane option. In fact, actually, one of my favorite moments in our conversation is when he talks about holding the line. I don't know if any of you remember that infamous scene from Braveheart before the, the great battle or one of the great battles, probably showing my age here, where Mel Gibson keeps shouting hold over and over and over again as the charging army gets rapidly closer. Mark talks about how he literally uses that technique from the movie, that phrase, over and over again when he's at the crest of a wave to keep himself in position until the exact right second. Basically to prevent himself from reacting to adrenaline by backing out or moving too fast. Unbelievably, as you will hear, Mark was actually frightened of the ocean as a child and spent his childhood visits with the family to the ocean sitting on the beach. And yet, he went on to carve out a niche as one of the top big wave surfers in the world having surfed many of the world's heaviest and biggest waves, including Cape Fear, um, Tihupo, I hope I got that right, Tahiti, Maui, and well, if you know anything about big waves, you'll probably be able to recite the rest. He has won three Oakley Big Wave Awards and is considered to be one of the best big wave surfers in the world. Then, while surfing in Australia in 2016, Mark fell feet first onto a shallow reef. Waking up later in a helicopter in a full body brace, he had tore his artery, nerve, multiple ligaments, and fractured his shin. After an artery transfer, he was assured by doctors that he could keep his leg, but that with that kind of nerve damage, he would never be able to surf again. And what followed was a new journey into fear, and one which he wasn't expecting, and he's still making his way out of today. The fear of starting again from starting from scratch only this time against the odds and while the whole world was watching in this epic conversation mark and i dive into the role of risk analysis when dealing with fear the fear of showing up how to hold the line when you're so committed you can't actually back down why pushing any boundary starts with being unreasonable i love this one adopting the art of being unreasonable how to ignore the feelings that make you want to run and swap fear for focus. The power of embracing pain to stop the brain from shutting you down. You know that moment, that moment where you feel like whatever you're about to do is unbearably hard or unbearably painful. How to embrace that to sidestep the brain and its natural survival mechanism. How to consciously choose your next adrenaline kick to take you to the next level. And why you should always train for wipeouts. You'll have heard us talk about that before um, with Brandon Webb, the, um, the Navy SEAL that we talked to about fear. Why training for wipeouts, training for worst case scenarios enables people to push past where other people would choke. I, 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 loved, I loved my conversation with Mark. He's, he's unassuming, he's humble. He's a genuinely beautiful man, and yet he's driven to take on challenges that will blow your mind. In fact, just quickly, after you finish listening to this, go Google his name and look at the images that come up. That should be enough for you to get a sense of exactly what I'm talking about. So, if you know you have a 50-foot opportunity or challenge coming your way, or maybe you feel like you're surfing one right now today, then this episode is for you. Sit back, buckle up 
and enjoy my conversation with the phenomenal big wave surfer, Mark Matthews. Mark Matthews, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. I, I'm going to kick off the way that I always kick this podcast off. Anybody who has listened to it for a long time is probably tired of hearing me explain it. But I want to ask you whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And the reason that I ask that is I feel like there's a myth potentially or a story out there that I come across a lot which is I can't be influential. I can't stand up and become uh, an authority or own my own voice unless I am an extrovert. And I personally haven't found that to be true, but I'm fascinated. So introvert or extrovert? Highly, highly introverted. Yeah? (laughs) Highly. Yeah, all of the different personality profiling tests that I've done comes out highly introverted. And neurotic as well, on top of that, and which neurotic. is a, yeah, which is a weird sort of setup for for an extreme sport athlete. <laughs> yeah, how do you? So the first time I ever came across you, I was walking. I was speaking at an event, and I was as I was walking into the auditorium to to check equipment, check mics. Um, the event pl- planner was walking out, and I could hear something going on in that room, and. And he said, he said, oh, that's just, that's just Mark. He's got a, you know, standing ovation, crowd going wild. And I was like, who, who on earth is Mark? So, you know, for you to go from raging introvert and neurotic to standing up there and owning your story, owning your voice to such an extent where, I mean, and these were, were not people that hadn't seen many, many speakers before, how do you bridge? I mean, I know it's a long road, but how do you bridge that gap? It's very difficult. It was, I mean, it was really difficult for me. Um, and like you said, it's a, it was a very long road also. Um, like my introvertedness, I can, you notice it very early on at school, like to the point where if I tried to read in front of the classroom when I was young, I would stutter. So I kind of gave that away really early. Like I have a super vivid memory of kids laughing at me and um and especially when i first went to a co-ed school it was i was put i remember being put on the spot that would have been year 10 so even later on and and the same thing having to read something from the textbook in the class and the same stuttering thing so it, it was apparent then and it was really bad so i think if you went back and told my english teachers at school that i was a public speaker they would laugh in your face <laughs> but um where did it come um I never wanted to be a speaker at all. It just through a, a few different connections, I ended up in the world of public speaking. I had a a, um, a sponsor when I was surfing years ago and the guy that was running the marketing for the company, he had a best friend who was in the world of corporate training that also had an adventure background. So he was a mountain climber. And um, he had said to me when he sponsored me and I would have been, early 20s at the time he said when you finish uh your surfing career you're going to be a public speaker he just from from my story yeah I, i guess his experience with how how 
successful his friend had been just by using his story in the corporate world and he said that to me and I laughed in his face I said 100% I won't be and and that guy actually it was kind of became a sort of father figure in my life and and definitely in my career over the years and pushed me to do it and um, I just slowly learned bit by bit I had the right people around me as far as people who pushed me and got me into those uncomfortable situations I think the defining part was when I finally said yes to a keynote so a 45 minute to an hour keynote and I said and it, and it was offered to me it's in a month's time and I just as much as I didn't want to and I turned so many down before because I really didn't want to go through the stress of one writing a keynote and and two then learning it and being able to deliver it but I finally said yes, just one day, kind of. I must have been feeling motivated or just on the back of a coffee or something like that. And then it, it was set in stone and I, and I had to figure out how to do it in that month's time. And so I wrote it. I, um, I did a whole bunch of different course, speaking course, facilitation course, watched all the online videos, read all the different books. And then I got up and did it and it went amazing. The, the very first one that I did um when i look back on the delivery it was terrible <laughs> like it was absolutely terrible in in my eyes knowing where i could get it to but i think the story combined with the the vision of of my surfing and and all of that just it seemed to be entertaining for an audience and i got told when i first delivered that talk the the ceo of the company it was a it was one of the australian banks uh, he came up to me and he said, look, I've watched a lot of speakers in my time. He said, whatever you do, don't lose that rawness. Don't get too polished because you'll, you'll lose it there. Like when it, when it becomes too polished and the emotion's gone. So I, I, that was really good advice for me. So when I did, I kept doing all the different courses because you have to, become polished to an extent so that you can continue to deliver without making mistakes because like you know the people pay you a lot of money to come and do the talk so you cannot you know have a failure so you need to be able to you know perform every single time but then like we said not losing that rawness and i think to me the the way i learned to do that was relive the story as i tell it like actually when I'm telling one of the surf stories or about a really bad wipeout I've had or an injury, I just, uh, in my head, I'm seeing it all happen and I'm, I'm going through, riding the wave, I'm feeling the pain as I hit, hit, the, hit the reef. I'm going through the fear again, you know, as I'm, as I'm saying the words. And I tell the story different every time, like the actual words that I use, but I think the motion's there every time. But it's exhausting for me absolutely exhausting i don't find anything more tiring than that i could run a marathon and and have more energy at the end of the day than do a talk there's an amazing storyteller that i know and he he uses those exact words when he talks about storytelling you don't you don't tell and retell a story you you have to live and relive a story otherwise it loses all all of its magic yeah. in the packaging and the polishing yeah. and the getting it picture perfect and word perfect well, let's, I'm going to flip for a second and I just want to, I just want to talk about 
some of the basics for anyone here who doesn't know much about big wave surfing, which was myself until I spent hours immersing myself in your world. What is big wave surfing? Can you and can you give me an idea of exactly how big those waves get? Okay, so the, the, when you look at professional surfing, like making money from surfing, there's there's kind of two versions of it. There's a competitive aspect aspect to surfing where you go and compete on the world tour vying to win a world title and then that's one avenue of professional surfing and when you do that you get sponsorships from companies just like every other elite sport and then so on the flip side of that there's free surfing we call it where there's not competition but you go out and surf to create content that people want to watch and then the sponsors come and pay you to sort of be able to brand that content that goes out to the viewer and then so in the free surfing world where there's no competition there's the big wave surfing and so the the, the business model of it is is that i go out and try and find the biggest waves that break on planet earth I chase them around the world with with a team of filmers photographers the my water safety crew who who look after me and, and we'll chase these swells around the world, surf them, uh, shoot the photo, shoot the video, create the content, put the content out into the media. And then based on the media value is where you <coughs> get the money from, from um, sponsorship. And you, I mean, you say there that there is no competition, but you are, you're still competing. I mean, you're competing for, you're competing for attention. Yeah, basically. So you're having to find bigger and bigger waves because you're, com I mean, that's more competitive. You're competing yeah. with the entire internet. Yeah, well, and there's kind of, the, it's not a, a sort of set um, like world tour, but we do have like awards where every year the biggest wave of the year is awarded or the ride of the year or the wipeout of the year. So there, there's an element of competition. And like you said, yeah, you're, you're vying for attention off people and that's the world of content marketing these days and there's so much content out there that yours has to be... And I mean, I was going to... Exciting Actually, enough. just quickly before I move on, the biggest wave. Give me some context. What are we talking? I can go from... It depends how the wave breaks, but a big wave is generally considered from 20 foot up and, and it can go... I think the biggest wave ever ridden is in the 70, 80 foot range. Um... I think the biggest wave I would have surfed paddling without a jet ski somewhere in the 30 to 40 foot range and then with jet ski 50 foot plus but it but when I say it people the size get they get freaked out by it but the thing is you can have a 20 foot wave and the way it breaks so if it goes from really deep water breaks on a super shallow wave a uh, sh super shallow reef so where the wave's breaking it can only be 20 foot, it might only be 20 foot high, but the power of a wave that breaks like that is, is as powerful and as dangerous to surf as the 70 foot waves. And, and the sort of stuff that we get here in Australia is like that. It's the, it's the sort of 15 to 20, 25 foot range, but more powerful than anywhere in the world almost. Now you've... Um I mean, we're talking some pretty crazy waves there. And and you said that when people hear what you do, they either think one of three things. He's he's crazy, he's suicidal, or he's born with some type of birth defect <laughs> that enables you not to feel fear. How do you how do you answer that? 
Yeah, it's funny when I tell people that I'm neurotic, it doesn't really fit the mold. No, it doesn't, yeah. which is what makes it doubly fascinating. Yeah, but it's funny because when I come across other extreme sports athletes, so I'm a Red Bull athlete, so I'm surrounded when we do performance work with Red Bull by other Red Bull extreme sports athletes. And a lot of them are very similar and neurotic because when you think about it, if you're not, you won't survive long in in an extreme sport like so i I have to it's like the way my brain works is i see all the different problems that may happen and and i i play them over in my head just non-stop and it's really just my brain preparing for what's going to happen in the surf and how i'm going to deal with it and then i think it's just you need enough motivation to to combat all that like i see all that stuff go wrong so i'm preparing for it but it takes the motivation to still put myself in that scary situation and and in those moments take off on that wave that may seem that dangerous does that make sense just drill down into it for me for a second so you're you set a goal to surf a certain type of wave and then you you're planning out, so your, your neurotic side, as you put it, is planning out pretty much everything that could go wrong. Now, in that moment to me, that's the moment where most of us would go, okay, no, I've just I've just mapped this out. There's 30 things that could potentially kill me or feel like they're going to kill me, kill me financially, kill me emotionally. That's the moment where most people would stop. So what is it in you that's, that sees those things and can push through to doing it anyway? I think it's it's experience first and foremost and, and building up from like a certain 10-foot waves to 15-foot waves to 20-foot waves and, and building this experience that highlights the fact that like we're, we're humans are hardwired for survival like, and there's a survival bias to the way our brains work and it's like it's not like we're hardwired for high performance or risk taking or anything like that and and it, it's just that you have to like all the scenarios that my brain may play out I just have I, I make sure I'm um, really pragmatic with like the percentage of those happening so I'm weighing up risk versus reward and and the reality is that the percentages of, of things going really bad, like drowning, are so minutely low as long as I do the preparation work. They're tiny. And so it, on one hand, it's me constantly assessing what could go wrong, but then how likely is that all the doing all the preparation so that if something goes wrong, I make the best of that situation or I prepare to avoid anything going wrong. And then at the same time, I'm constantly like, well, questioning, why am I doing this? You know, what, what, what does success look like? But then why do I want to succeed? And then that keeps me making that de- decision to keep doing it. And then the, in big wave surfing, there's just the moment that you go through that crazy amount of fear and all the anxiety in the lead up to a big swell, and then you're there on the day and it's terrifying and then you finally get on one of these waves and you ride one and you come off the back of the wave successfully 
that feeling is so unbelievably addictive <laughs> and and like that's what keeps you coming back the combination of that feeling and the addiction to that feeling and then of course the the business side of what you do like the the value that you're going to get out of being a successful professional athlete those two things combine create the motivation so that when your brain has all that panic in the lead up to doing things you're still motivated enough to sort of keep pushing through it so you know let's let's just assume for a second i think safely assume that you are you are not crazy um you don't appear suicidal would you say again this goes back to the introvert intro, introvert extrovert question would you say you were born let's not call it a birth defect would you say that you were born with unique wiring that enables you to turn off fear or is this something that you have developed and worked on over time i, d I definitely wasn't born that way a hundred percent because i was the most scared kid in the surf compared to all the peer group or friends that i surf with i was always the most scared when i was young sort of early teenage years by far and even on land i'm doing anything extreme on land i'm, I'm scared of it that when i look back in my child because i try and figure this stuff out too like i'm because i want to explain it to people so when i look back on my childhood the i try and find the points that like what made me so motivated though to do it and and it's weird but it, every time i come back to something and then i look at what motivates other people I, it feels like there's nothing else but wanting to be loved like you want people to like love you friend like it just seems like regardless at the very end <laughs> if you break down everyone's motivation no matter what they do it seems like that's it and then i'm like well why is it so heightened in me that i would do such an extreme sport for that and then I don't know if you're born with genetics like that a little bit or or maybe it was a weird family dynamic, but I didn't have, like my family dynamic was amazing. I think maybe like there was, there were two things. My my dad's a surgeon, so he wasn't around a whole lot. And, and I always would be striving for his attention. Like I wanted his sort of, um, like for him to say, be proud of me. If I overheard when I was a kid, him, talking about me to other parents or saying he did this or this like I felt I, I looking back on it I feel like that's one of my was one of my main drivers as a kid and then I think um if that if that was the main one and then like and they seem so arbitrary like that it wouldn't make a big difference but I remember being young and where I was living there were only older kids around me so I was always trying to hang out with these older kids and older kids don't want to hang with a young kid. And it was like, I was constantly shunned. So, and I was just always trying to like do things for them to like me. And I don't know if it was just something as simple as that, that kind of hardwired in you to make me more motivated around those things. And then as you get older, like you kind of chase that and then I can use it in like a, part where it's to do with financial success and and other aspects of it i think also Does that makes sense i don't know yeah you're actually reminding me of a conversation i had with a friend a while ago who's she's an incredibly successful woman and she was struggling at that point because she had just 
she was bordering on on burnout and just felt like she was getting closer and closer to the wall and the train was not slowing down and we were talking about how one of the hardest lessons you learn in business but it it also applies to what you're talking about is that no one's going to give you a high five there's never going to be this moment where everybody stops you and gives you a massive high five and goes, mm. "Oh, you just you just blew it out of the park. That was incredible." Do you know what we've we've been watching? We've noticed. You should sit down. Sit down. Take a breath. You know, take a rest. You deserve it. You've done amazingly. And I think somewhere at a primitive, instinctive level, we we do believe that that moment's coming. Mm-hmm. That if we just go harder and harder and harder, that high five is going to come and you crave it and you do crave it subconsciously like even if you don't and i'm wondering if there's you know in terms of a healthy way of doing that because you know one is driven by external circumstances Mm. and validation and as we know that only takes you so far but a healthy way of doing that is when you surround yourself which i think that you did as a surfer when you surround yourself by with people who are at the top of their game. 100%. And then rather than running for their approval, you're you're running because you c- you can see what is possible mm-hmm. and you can see that somebody else has done it and they're able to give you some insights. And so you're still running to catch up, but now you're running to catch up out of inspiration as opposed to fear. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, that's the thing because it's like you, you, you want to be loved like and and i think that's a like you've just evolved to have that it's that whole scenario around if you weren't part of the tribe when you were back on the plains of africa hundreds of thousands of years ago you'd die so it's so hardwired into you and then on top of that if humans only want to really survive and procreate like being loved you can't do it without that as well so i think it's just such a strong driver but then it it gets to a point where you like that inverted you sort of performance curve or hormetic curve where it's all dose dosage um dependent so you need so much of that as a motivator but then too much of it it starts to detract so if you're worried what people think that's a great thing because it's going to motivate you and it's going to make you interact with people better. So you need a certain element of that. But then once you start caring too much about what people think, it detracts from perfor- your performance. And exactly like you said, that's what makes who you surround with yourself with so important because if you're constantly trying to impress or impress the wrong crowd of people... And, and their ideals, then it will take you down the wrong path and, and vice versa. And, and, and if you don't get the fit, like it creates a weird imbalance. And we want to talk a little bit about where you grew up and, and the culture that you grew up in. But before, before we get onto that, talking about people who love you, you had said that, you know, you started out and you were terrified, terrified of the ocean. And, you know, I've got in my notes here that your mum had to paddle out and come and get you on numerous occasions. And, you know, it got me thinking, what did she, what did she say to you on that paddle back that obviously kept you going out there enough? Yeah, it was just, I think that that was the weird dynamic I had from my mum, like, 
like it wasn't like I was vying for her her love attempt like I wanted that from my dad my mum was just always there for me and she would in those moments where I was terrified like just kind of have to coax me back to the beach because I'd be sort of stuck out there being too scared to paddle in or catch a wave in and, and not go through the wipeout and um yeah I just remember it would be her coaxing me in and it's just those those words of you you can get better at this like that um that whole thing like you're not stuck this is not you you know like you're not always going to be scared of things like it's like next time it'll be better you know next time you'll be all right so i think it was just like in instilling that or like if you, if you keep doing it you the fear will go away like that was probably the the sort of undertone of the, everything that she used to say and then there was that sort of like drive to show my dad I could do something and then the combination of the two was um yeah it was it was interesting I keep trying to play it back because people always ask me like where that sort of motivation comes from or where the drive to do something so dangerous comes from or like there's so many things at play but but that message, I, I think, think that's such yeah, a powerful when, message. I, when I look at all athletes, high-performing people, business people, everyone, it just seems you can boil everything down to what they do to have that social aspect to it. Because beyond, like that just seems to underpin most motivators. So there's, there's, two, there's two main hurdles to overcoming fear. And one we've talked about, actually, strangely enough, although I didn't intend it to go there, we've talked about it in reference to public speaking. You know, the first hurdle to get over is just saying the word yes or stating your intention out loud for the very first time. And that can take years. The, this, the second one is, for me, it's an even tougher moment. And that's when you're so committed, and you referenced this before as well, you're so committed that you can't back down at that moment so you've either got two options either the fear overwhelms you or you learn how to focus it into performance what does that moment look like in your world is it the prep is it the being led onto the wave is it the moment you head down the wave uh, yeah i think the most important moment when and i explain this to people is without the the jet ski so we I'm surfing and I've got to paddle into these waves and you have to position yourself perfectly when this huge mountain of water is coming to where you're sitting and and there's a moment where your natural instincts you see this huge wave and you get really scared that the wave's going to break on top of you and and you naturally want to paddle out to it and get over the top of it so it won't break but in order to catch that wave you have to put yourself kind of on the knife's edge of that wave being really close to where that wave's going to break on top of you so you have to there's this constant battle of of you know, like you give in to your fear and then paddle out and then but then you won't catch that wave so then and i always say it's like when i watched that movie braveheart with mel gibson all those years when when they're on the front lines and and the the other the enemy's coming toward you and and but he's yelling out hold like hold the line like to, in my head when I'm sitting in the ocean, that swell line's coming. Like I know if I wasn't under any pressure or fear, I know I'm sitting in the right spot, but it's just the fear making me want to get. So I'm just sitting myself, okay, just hold, hold, hold. 
and then I, I make sure I'm positioned there and then it's that moment to just swing and go. And that that's almost like a you gotta just let go. You can't it's it all happens too fast. You can't sort of cognitively analyze what's happening it's just that's all learnt motor skills from that point on like from, when the wave's approaching you you're thinking like hold i'm in the right spot this is it i'm hold this is the one it looks but you know but then from the time you turn and paddle and and drop into the wave then it happens so fast that you've got to like try and not analyze and just react and i think what gets you to make the right decisions there to hold is the preparation all the years of preparation before that leading up in increments and and doing like all the hard work training yourself so that you can deal with the wipeouts just all of that type of stuff it, that's what gets you to make the right decision i've got a, a line here that that you had said which i thought was really interesting you were talking about training and you said that you know training training is important and you know training to succeed is obviously important breaking down other people's successes seeing if you can replicate them but you said training for wipeouts when it comes to facing fear training for wipeouts is the most is the most important thing you can do and it reminded me i think it was martin luther king had during during the protests that they were a part of he would get the protesters in a room and rather than practicing the protest he would have them sit on a chair and try and sit absolutely still while somebody hurled the worst kind of insults that they could think of at them. And if you can sit in that, in, f in facing the worst of what's to come and see if you can manage every single emotional trigger that comes up for you in that moment, then you're likely to succeed. 100%. So how do you, in your and world... And conditioning yourself to it. Yeah. yeah, you know, in your world, how do you train for wipeouts? Obviously, it's that moment where you're like, you know, mm -hmm. hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. What else do you train for so that you are so comfortable with wipeouts that the fear of them dissipates? Yeah, so it's... First, think about what, what's the worst-case scenario or the worst case that I can somewhat control and that will be me a big wave either breaking on me or me wiping out on a big wave and then the wipeout is where you're getting rolled around in this huge washing machine What's underwater like? walk me through that like i think of if you on a monster wave maybe jumping off niagara falls <laughs> like something like that you take a huge drop the impacts massive like powerful and then you're getting rolled around by all this turbulent water. And training for that is, is the Martin Luther King moment of, of sitting there while someone's hurling and being able to control your emotion in that, in that exact moment because that basically determines whether you're going to live or die. If you panic at any stage there, you run out of oxygen really quickly. So we do the, the, the best training for it is with free divers. And the freedivers will take us down and basically teach you about everything that goes on in your body when you're holding breath. Because you go through all different sensations as one, the oxygen is drawn out of your body or you, you're using it all up. And two, you get carbon dioxide build up in your lungs, which creates pain. And the interesting thing when you, when you look at that, that point around survival bias in the brain, 
in in most physical activities and the breath hold is the the best example of it you your brain always your body's telling your brain that you need to breathe in at sort of the 20 percent capacity so it's like no this is all you've got get up quick but that's right. not a reality. So it's, that moment where your brain says, yeah, we've had enough. It it's a bit like out. the empty gauge on a car where yeah. you know that th- there's if more. you know enough about it, you know there's more. If you have the knowledge that there's more, you understand the sensations. And most importantly, you can stay relaxed. There's 80% more. 80% or 20%? No, no, no. It kicks in at 20%. So you have 80% more. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's like anywhere from, it'll kick in from, from, for me anyway, 20 to 30%. Like I'll start feeling pain in my lungs, say yeah, at the 30% capacity mark. And I can, I know when I feel that pain, if I relax, so I can have two responses there, panic and fight to get to the top. And then my heart rate will go a million miles an hour. Your muscles will use up all the oxygen and then I'll be out of breath really quickly. But if I if I relax in that moment and just embrace the pain, understand that no, I'm not going to black out as long as I relax, then I can go for two thirds as long, which is crazy. And it's interesting. It's just it's really similar to um, like fatigue in an endurance athlete. The brain switches your muscles off, makes you stop running before anything else. I've seen a, a scientist did it where he had. Um, marathon runners on a treadmill and asked them to run till they collapsed and then he biopsied their muscles and there wasn't actually lactic acid in the muscle yet so there was no reason for them to collapse other than the brain was just shutting them off because this it felt like it was a dangerous situation stop it get out of it how do you combat um just to to stop you there because that's really interesting so you're because it feels involuntary what you're talking about if your brain shuts you down what do you do in that moment to stop that automatic reflex of your brain shutting you down that that's the conditioning like it's it's like you're rewiring your brain so now when i go down as soon as i feel that pain in my lung that lungs which is actually co2 build up it's not a lack of oxygen when i feel that pain my my body instinctively now relaxes versus panics and, and that's just by going underwater, having the, the divers, free divers with us, holding me down and like wrestling and just constantly doing that over and over again. So my new response to that situation is to relax. And then that kind of just rewires it. You know? And it, I find that the most interesting part of performance because it, it highlights so much that survival bias in a physical sense but then if you were to think or people would think about their lives and their performance, not necessarily on a physical fear level, but those social fears around, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. I, don't, like, I, I, would be, I would honestly believe it would be very similar. So whatever you think your capacity is in whatever given skill, it's probably your brain will probably think at about 20, 30% where you actually have 70% more. Uh, I think it would be very similar. I want to I just dive into survival bias there for a second. Now, when I was researching, I, I saw this article and at first it made me laugh and then, and then I thought about it a little bit more deeply. 
the title of the, I think it was an article or a video, and the title was, Is Mark Matthews Unreasonable? And, you know, I, I had I had a giggle. And then, and then it got me thinking, you know, does pushing any boundary, either a boundary in a sporting field, a boundary in your own body, which is what you're talking about there, your brain's mental boundary, does pushing any boundary always start with being unreasonable? Do you have to be unreasonable to even attempt it? I think I think compared to what the general consensus is, it seems unreasonable. So so yeah, to an extent, you've got to be unreasonable. The kind of the way your bias is. Well, because especially since the reasonable part of your brain, the survival bias that you're talking about, that part, as we've said, is naturally wired to be risk averse, and and yet I'm not explaining this very well, but yet you have to. In what you do especially, you have to swap from being unreasonable to reasonable and unreasonable and then back again, where you start out with an unreasonable idea and then so much of what you do is science-based or if you're running a company, it's economics-based, it's you know data-based. So then you have to go into reasonable mode. And then you have to go back into being unreasonable again and hold the vision. Do you find it difficult swapping between those modes, being utterly unreasonable and then being reasonable again when you've, you've got data in front of you saying this might not be such a good idea? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a constant risk versus reward sort of play that goes on at all times. And, that, and that's why when I speak in front of audiences, if I have that short amount of time, I always talk on the most important factor is, is your motivation. Like, what, is, what does success look like for you more importantly why do you want to succeed like those two things that will govern everything else that will govern what is reasonable unreasonable like if you have a like a vision and success to you like it can be anything but if success to you is a long way away and you're going to have to go through a whole lot but the reasons why you want that are worth it then what you go through to get there won't seem as unreasonable if you constantly remind yourself but people don't like there's this uh, when i started speaking and (coughs) i was to the to speaking bureaus i was like i like to talk about motivation i think motivation underpins all success it underpins everything we do but there was this sort of thing in the corporate world like oh we've heard enough of motivational speakers we don't we don't want to hear about it anymore like people are against the word motivation but and and I think it's because people they they get the glimpse of motivation and then it dies off and then you don't have it and then you feel unmotivated and um and they think then oh then it's not about motivation, it's about forming habits or it's about something else. Like there's just went down this different path. But when you bring it all back, it it's always motivation. To, like if you want to form new habits how hard is that to do <laughs> especially as an adult <laughs> like so like to me it's just the motivation part is just important to continuously remind yourself or especially in the crucial moments like you said you're faced with two decisions one seems very unreasonable and and one seems really safe and you can avoid any sort of stress in that moment before you make the decision just step back and then look at you know remind yourself of what you're chasing and why you why you're doing it and then you'll have a more chance to to beat that survival bias and then when you can make a commitment like with the public speaking like and that's why for me the public speaking learning public speaking was all about 
doing whatever I could to motivate myself. So I was making a commitment to do a keynote. I would spend ridiculous money to do a public speaking course because if I spent $10,000 on this course, I would have to go and do it. So that got me there to do it, you know. So it was just fighting against that that wiring in your head. Have you have you ever looked at the data, so been reasonable, looked at the data on a, let's, on a big wave and all indications are potentially pointing to the fact that you shouldn't go out there and made an unreasonable decision to do it anyway and either been glad you did or regretted it? Both, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and that's a really good point. But... <coughs> There, there's some situations, there's some. There's one particular wave in, in Western Australia that I surfed when I was young and I rode a wave out there and it was so dangerous and, when, and I made the wave but I remember having this thought that I was going to fall and then when I looked at the footage in my head, if I fell there, I would have died. Like, oh, I mean, high likelihood. And I've never been back to surf that wave. Like, yeah, I was like, that, that's it. It's, un- it's way too unreasonable. Like, I don't do things where, I, where there's a high chance that I'm going to die. As much as people think that, I do all the preparation. I take all the safety measurements. Dying is not one of the things that's in my head. It's not, that's not scary to me. There, there's injury is scary to me. But in, in my head, the, the reward from what I do is worth the risk of injuries, not dying. So and have the, you the, the probability the of dying for me is very, very low. Have you learned over the years to, to be able to marry those two things, to be able to tell the difference between unreasonable holding a vision that nobody else can see and reasonable paying attention to the facts, the data, the people around you who are telling you that it's possibly not a good idea? Have you learned how to balance them? Yeah, one, one of the main points is... I've found is is the reason why I'm doing it. So if I can, I'm going out into a surf and if I'm thinking too much about the financial career side of what this is going to bring to surfing and, and I get too caught up in that, that that's where I have to be careful because that's where I'm taking risks that are probably beyond what I should be. When I think about, okay, would I surf this wave if I wasn't a professional surfer? Like, would I be excited to do this? Would it be worth it then? When I marry those two, then then I get a clearer picture. And then on top of that, like you said, I speak to other people as well. But then it's interesting because I've, I've had different teams around me and surf with different surfers. And, and I need the perfect balance of, I can't have, it's impossible for me to do what I do if I have a person that's way more scared than me and is is reminding me even more about what could go wrong because I already do that to myself. So the perfect balance for me is is that that personality that's even is more overconfident and then and and Richie Vass is a, a guy that I grew up with and um we sort of have the perfect dynamic because it's like he he's completely overly confident in the surf whereas I'm the other end of the spectrum and we fit really well like it he motivates me and and i pull him back where it needs me and we just it all works really well but you know i need that perfect dynamic yeah it's interesting you say that you know thinking back to every 
mistake I have ever made in business and probably in life too. And it, you're right, it comes down to that moment of, am I doing this for money? Am I doing this because I'm scared of what people think if I don't? Any of those fear-based motivators and you tend to make bad choices. But when you ask yourself the question, and I, I've started to recently actually ask myself the question, if I had a billion dollars in the bank and I could do whatever I wanted to do on any given day, which, you know, truthfully, when it all boils down, I can, you know, could choose to choose to do whatever I want on any given day if I decided to, you know, go and live in a hut, hut on the beach, tricky with kids. But, you know, if that were the truth, would I do this? Would I do this because it's a stretch? Would I do this because it, it inspires me? Would I do this because it, it makes me feel, feel, feel fearful and that's a reason to do it? You come at it from a totally, a totally different place. Now, you mentioned back there, you said, I'm not, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of injury. Yeah, I, I'm afraid of dying, but the likelihood of me dying in the surf is very low. So it's, like, it's so injury is the predominant yeah, risk. Yeah, the predominant fear for me is injury. And so back in, not that long ago, back in 2016, mm-hmm. you had what could be called a very significant accident. Can you, can you tell, me, tell me what happened? Yeah, that was my worst injury by far. I, um, I was surfing a wave down the south coast of Australia, so about five hours south of Sydney. And it wasn't a particularly big wave, but it was super shallow where it was breaking. So where the wave's breaking, it's probably a foot deep. And we surf waves like that because when it goes from deep water to shallow water really quickly, it creates a really wide, big barreling wave. And to get yourself inside the tube or the barrel of the wave is, that's the best feeling in, in surfing. And on top of that, it creates the most amazing imagery in surfing. So there's reasons why we surf those shallow waves, but they are the most dangerous. Anyway, I just, I made a couple of bad mistakes on the day as far as I picked the wrong wave. And and that was because I didn't do the due diligence in in learning about this wave because I hadn't surfed it before. And I was probably overconfident going down there. And um, yeah, so I picked the, the wrong wave. And then the second mistake was because I'd picked the wrong wave, it meant the wave was going to close out, which means a wipeout's inevitable. I should have ridden the wave out as long as I can. If you do that and let the wave break all around you, the energy of the wave dissipates around you and the wipeout's not so bad. But what I tried to do was dive off the wave early to escape a wipeout. So dive off sort of in front of my board, Uh, dive underwater let the wave pass over the top of me and then swim out the back to safety but as I did that I was just about free and swimming out the back but the wave was too powerful and it picked me up and smashed me into the reef so I came down on the reef uh, with all my my weight on one leg my right leg and at the same time all the power of the wave was on the back on my back and it just compressed me into the reef. And, and straight away, I, f- I felt my leg pop. And I just searing, crazy pain in my leg. And then the, the next sort of 12 hours is a bit of a blur. I was kind of like in and out of consciousness because of the pain. I was, I was fainting. And eventually I got rescued, taken to the beach. 
um, had to wait on the beach for about an hour in the pain <laughs> and uh, for the ambulance to come. The ambulance come and the ambulance officer, when he got to me, he, he, he had the decision, like, do we put him in the ambulance, drive him to the hospital, which would have taken about three hours. Canberra Hospital, I think, would have been the closest. Or does he call for the medivac? And so the standard, the, the helicopter, um, the standard procedure would be not to call for the medivac because it's crazy expensive and it's, you only do it on really <coughs> um, certain situations. Like, And uh, I had no blood or anything in my leg. So it was so lucky that he was really good at his job because... When he, you say you had no blood, as in you, you weren't bleeding? No, I wasn't bleeding at all. And um, I was just so lucky that this ambulance officer was really good at his job. And, and he noticed that because I thought I'd broke my leg sort of at the shin bone, which is bad, but not crazy bad. But he noticed that my, my knee was completely dislocated because he could see this weird bend in my leg at the knee joint. And then because of his experience, he thought that there could possibly be internal bleeding. So they called for the medivac. Anyway, I woke up in the hospital the next morning after surgery and the, the doctor who did the emergency surgery on my leg comes in and he's like, good news and bad news. It's like, the good news is we saved your leg. I was like, I, I thought I just had a broken leg. I was like, what do you mean save my leg? <laughs> this is not hard, this is just broken. He said, no, you had completely torn the artery that was in your leg. I'd been bleeding internally. He said, if I got to the hospital one hour later, they would have to amputate my leg at the knee. So I was over the moon. <laughs> I was like, man, what a relief. But then he said that, well, I asked him the question. I was like, because the pain was so bad. I've, ha I've had all different types of pain, like broken bones, torn ligaments, you know, stitches, all that sort of stuff. And this was like something I'd never felt before. So I was like, why is there this pain and why can't I feel or move my foot and he said well when your knee dislocated you tore through the major nerves that run through your leg and down into your foot and he said the damage is unfixable he said that's when we opened you up it's, there's too much damage we can't do anything about it and he basically told me I was going to be disabled to a degree can't move my foot for the rest of my life so it was I went from being really happy to just freaking out. Like, what does that mean for me, you know? And um, over the next sort of month or two, it was, you know, my surfing career's over. That's what the doctors were telling me. I mean, my dad came down and he had never been down to see me at any other injury when I'd been in hospital. <laughs> so when I saw him walk into the room, because he's a surgeon, when I saw him walk in the room, I was like, this must be serious if he's flying all the way down here. And, um, yeah, and he was telling me as well, like, the reality is that your surfing career is over. And it was so tough to hear because I'd been, at, at, like, to a point in my career then where I, I just getting to the point where I was achieving everything I'd wanted to achieve. Like, I put in so much work to get that, had the big sponsorships with Red Bull, all this amazing stuff and it was kind of like those next five years were going to set me up financially i'd done all the hard work and what i do is like i was spending 
the majority of what I was earning to keep building the profile, you know, like keep getting the media and it cost a lot of money to do that and travel nonstop. And, and I just got to the point where I was like earning good money. And I was like, yeah, I can set, it's all worth it. Now I can set myself up. And then this happened and it was just devastating. Um, for the next sort of couple of months in hospital, I was just in really bad pain that doesn't go away. And that was the other bad news that the pain specialist was like, you got to, the pain isn't going to go away ever. You're going to always have so, that sort of extent of pain. And they put you on every medication under the sun because nerve pain, like the standard opioid painkillers don't work that well for. So they've got all these other different nerve meds that are just horrible. So I was on all this different medication, couldn't sleep at night, burning pain. And I just started, and I, I couldn't move. My leg was in a metal frame, like bolted into the bones all down my leg while the artery was trying to heal. I had these huge wounds on my leg. And um, I couldn't move, couldn't sleep. And, and I was in this crazy amount of pain. And I got so depressed. Like, sort of, it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And um, it was, it was this one moment what that that changed everything like the trajectory of what was happening and it was this kid um had wrote to me on social media his name is jason and he had read the story of what had happened to me and realized that i was in canberra hospital and he was in canberra hospital as well downstairs and he wrote to me oh i follow your career i fo followed it all my life can i come up and say hello and um <coughs> I hadn't, like, not even my close friends, I hadn't, didn't want to see anyone. When you get depressed, you just can't be bothered with anything. I was just staring at a TV screen the whole time. And um, I didn't even write back. I put my phone away and it was just my now wife. She she was there at my bedside and saw the message and just wrote to him, like, come up. No worries. And he came up a, a, a few hours later, but he got wheeled into my bedroom. He was complete quadriplegic. He had broken his neck. I think it was a month or two before I did my leg. Just snowboarding and, and not doing anything crazy snowboarding. And he was on the first leg of his around the world tour. Like just finished school and stuff. Was just planned this trip around the world. First trip was to go to the snow. Broke his neck. Quadriplegic for the rest of his life. And in when he got wheeled to my bedside and and like this big grin on his face and he sticks out his hand to shake my hand and you like when you when you shake someone's hand as a quadriplegic confronting because they can't control their body properly they can barely lift their arm and their hands dangling but they just like want to embrace you, you know it's a sailor and i swear in that moment it was like my whole perspective of what was going on just flipped because I went from being like like so much self-pity and anger and I just like angry at the world that this wasn't fair this had happened to me now I can't believe it the pain was driving me mad and then in that moment it was like holy shit how lucky am I like my I could have easily I could have fallen hit that reef so many different ways to be in the situation this poor kid was in. And and here he is dealing with it better than I was dealing with it. That was the crazy thing. 
So it was just like a reality check. And I swear that that flip of perspective just, it, it just changed the trajectory. Like that night was the first night I slept, like fully slept. Like I probably got five hours straight of sleep, which in a hospital and with the pain that I had was a miracle. <laughs> but then I woke up in the morning with just a little bit more energy and, and just that little bit of energy I could deal with the pain a bit better and then I, I was like oh, I can eat better and then <clears throat> it just kind of got better and better over time like I'd like to say I was happy and grateful 100% of the time but that's not true but I had so many more moments of gratitude from that day onwards and I just felt like I could in the worst scenarios where the pain was bad or where I couldn't sleep and I'd be up in the middle of the night I'd be thinking about my career was finished I could just go, okay, and I would just, this is what I'd actually do, it kind of sounds sadistic, but I would just lay in bed and just go, okay, how would the rest of your day pan out right now if you had Jason's injury? Like, and just try and imagine it. Like, you can't even move. Like, you got to yell out to someone to come and help you go to the toilet or you can't even scratch an itch or you can't, like... And I would make myself do that, especially in the mornings or late at night. I was just like, I would li- like experience, try and experience what he's dealing with. And when you do that, like, it's super sad on one hand. Like, I'm sad for him, but at the same time, I'm like, you get this overwhelming gratitude, like emotion hits you. Like, fuck me, I'm lucky, you know. Like, and it, and I just kept doing it over and over again and to the point where I would speak to him on the phone and that would do it or like just seeing him every now and then that would do it and it's completely selfish like I'm uh, I'm I'm, it's like I'm using his situation and it helps me which sucks in a way but he kind of loved it like I would tell him all the time like I meant you're my inspiration you're dealing with your injury as good as you're dealing with it and and it's inspiring me man what a beautiful I was going to ask if you were still in touch and what a beautiful opportunity to give to him to be able to at a point in time where it would be easy to feel I'm imagining as much as you can helpless to give him the opportunity to inspire oh he loved it to feel powerful enough to inspire somebody that you hold so mm. highly like that's that's also an incredible gift to receive yeah. as, as well as what, what he has given you. He loved it, yeah. <laughs> it's like his mission to get me to surf big waves again so he could watch. Now, you, you said after that, I don't know when, I don't know at what, what point you said this, but you said about the ocean, I couldn't even look at it for the longest period of time. And, you know, I think for anybody that's ever, ever risked anything big or small their life um their house their relationship you know that they will you will inevitably have an experience of crashing at some point and yours was potentially life-threatening um how how do you start to come back from that because you you have said that you know you want to get back to big wave surfing we were talking about your rehab just before just before this interview how do you go from there, from not being able to look at the ocean to contemplating getting on those, you know, massive, massive waves again? Yeah, it's a process. I mean, 
in the beginning I didn't want to like I was just the fear was too strong if I even thought about surfing big waves again and but I knew in the back of my head I was like I'm I'm not healthy right now I'm on all these different drugs my body's like I haven't moved I have no adrenaline like just don't think about it now wait just wait like and and it at the beginning it wasn't my goal to surf big waves it's like okay i'm gonna shut out and and i would think about this when it was to do with how jason would deal with what he was going through like how how is the only way you can cope with an injury that severe and and when i thought about it, it was like the only way i'd be able to do that and it helped me with my injury is like just shut out everything you can't do don't even think about it like just put it aside like it just seemed would create sadness and and angst to to be like i can't do this i can't do that it's not fair you know so i just would shut it all out not think about and then just find what i could do like find what i enjoyed doing even though i was injured like just simple things that i felt found fun and and just do that and don't worry about anything else and just keep doing that and and the minimal amount of activity i needed to get healthier and eat better and stuff like that so it was i let go of any sort of big goal but then i just over time just started to get healthier started to get stronger and then i become more energetic so i could train a bit more and then the pain would start to die down and and it's just a 18 month period of of that and then i got to the point where i was like okay i I can get in the water now. That was my, like the first big one for me was back at the first time I went back in the ocean and it was it was with my wife. She's my wife now, but like, because that was one of our things. We used to always go in the surf together. It was like the happiest moment, you know, we'd share together. So it was like, that was the one big goal because that was a simple one. And then it just kind of kept building from there, building from there. And then I, once I started to feel better and I got off all the medication and I started to feel stronger, then the the urge to surf again and the urge to surf big waves slowly started to build again you know because it's such a that's the other aspect of dealing with with scary things and being motivated to do them or dealing with stress and fear is like your actual physical health plays such a role in the way your brain works or in the way you mentally assess any given situation so i think when my health started to come back then like this part of my brain that enjoys that rush started to come back. Yeah. The, you had said um, that the key to to mastering your fear and and you know you've you've been through that process where you're mastering fear that stands between you and a massive goal or a massive wave, and and you've also been very much in the situation where you're mastering the fear of just getting back to where you started having fallen and getting back to where back to the beginnings back to being in a position mentally and emotionally where you could even conceive of having a goal that big you said that the the key is to ignore the feelings that make you want to run ignore those feelings how I have a far more complex question in my head, but the only thing that's coming out of my mouth is yeah. how. <laughs> so it's, it's like ignore or 
it's kind of embrace like embrace the feel like there's such a fine line between so if you have emotion and feeling and your response to that emotion is a certain way that you feel and and if you think about when people think about when they feel excited or whether they feel nervous the the feeling is so similar like it's and and when it's measured physiologically it's pretty much the exact same thing and and i think it's just you what determines whether you view that feeling as i'm excited to do something or i'm nervous to do something i think is just your 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 perspective of the situation and your relationship with those feelings like if if you've built through experience where you've felt that ang- anxious feeling you felt it in in whatever area of your life in performance you felt it you've taken it on and you've done what you needed to do and then you feel that relief on the back and that that sort of a sense of achievement then that more a lot of moments like that will change that relationship to those feelings so it's like then when it comes around again and it might be in a totally different part of your life it's like okay i know that feeling like I'm, am i know and then you can question it like i feel nervous about doing this but but could it be excitement and, and then I, I even do stuff like I'll, I'll say it to myself i'm really excited about going to do this talk i'm really excited about it and i say it a hundred times in my head i'm really excited about doing it or, or like out loud works even better and it just like that tiny change in the way you perceive what you're feeling it can make all the difference so random question not on my list what it what are you afraid of right now? What's your, what's number one on your fear list right now? Uh, what stresses me out the most is still an introverted thing. Like social situations for me are the most stressful <laughs> situations in my life, <laughs> which is bizarre. But <laughs> like I have to go to a, a GQ ball, like and and so you're on a random thing of table, and to me I'm like when I think about that it's just like not enjoyable at all like in my head because it's just that awkward social situation I just like it's so painful but at the same time I'm like well one I I might meet someone amazing that's that's really interesting and like really good and like so so putting myself in those like as an introvert into those scenarios and and trying to use some techniques to enjoy that scenario um, it's probably the scariest, but at the same time, to me, it's it's probably the most interesting part of of performance for me at the moment because I haven't been surfing big waves, so it's like I really need to should be expanding on things here in this social place where, for an introvert, it's terrifying. <laughs> um, okay, final question. Final question. Um, if I could give you the stage, a stage. And in front of you, I could put every single person that you would want to influence. And I gave you a microphone in five minutes. What's the one thing? What's the one thing you would want them to know? Mm. Oh, man, it's tough for one thing. I, I, I think something that's that I've been thinking about a lot lately that helped me a lot was don't, 
have that victim mindset like like I'm the victim of this injury and you know, it's done this to me and now the rest of my life I'm going to see people and be like I have you know I think the if you frame your life in you're the victim of this or society's oppressing you for this reason or that like I think it's a draining mindset it's very hard to to get any sort of success in any area of life when you constantly think about that and I I know because I was living in it when I had this injury and when you go from victim to lucky like I'm and and more of your headspace is around I feel lucky I think that's that sort of puts you on a totally different trajectory it's like I think yeah I would if I was going to talk about anything new it would just be on that sort of topic well thank you it's been an utter utter pleasure and privilege (laughs) thank you combination of those two words um thank you so much for being on the podcast thanks for having me Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.